Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 8 through 14. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping over, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Would you read verse 14 aloud with me? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Father, I pray that in these moments of diving into your word, you would open up our eyes to behold the wonder of the glory of the birth of the Son of God and what that means for us regarding peace, peace with you, peace with ourselves, and peace with others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may grab a seat. So needing a car uh, a couple months ago, Pastor Cleet put me onto an auction so that sweet 1990 Mazda B22 truck that looks like a miniature truck out front, I've been driving around now, I bought it for $2,600, what a great steal it was, it actually was a really good deal. And one of the things I love about this car, it doesn't have all the electronics, don't you hate how with these more modern cars, electronics are always messing up and you got to get work on it that's way beyond our pay grade. So it's real basic. It does have an older radio, which was, must have been cutting edge for 1990 because it has a digital display. The only thing is you can't read the digital display. It's faded out. So I just have to kind of blindly surf through channels just to find some music to listen to. While I'm driving this gem of a truck, Mazda B2200, 1990, early October, flipping through the stations, and of all things I come across, Christmas music. Yeah, I know, right, Chris? Early October. Mind you, it's not Thanksgiving, let alone October or November. Not October, not even Halloween, and for some of you, not Harvest Fest yet. It is early in the fall. And what's more, I found out even at that time, that radio station is devoted to Christian music 24-7. What's even crazier is I listened to three or four songs. And what's even crazier, I actually kind of enjoyed it there in early October. I don't know what's going on, a late life crisis, the hallmarkization of my canopy, but I enjoyed it. Now the truth is, Christmas songs are not new. You know, Christmas songs have been around for a long time. Crazy as this sounds, they've been around since the very first Christmas. And today, we're launching a four-week series called The Songs of Christmas, in which we're going to look at four, as it were, Christmas songs from the sacred word of God itself. And what we're going to find that each of these four songs we're going to look at in consecutive weeks strikes at the heart 
of what I believe every human longs for, whether they realize it or not. You see, first of all, in a world racked with worry and anxiety and conflict, you really can experience true peace, truly. In a world racked with sorrow and heartache and despair, and there's plenty of reasons to feel that way, nonetheless, you can have true joy, truly. In a world racked with slavery to all kinds of things, slavery to the opinions of others, that's called the fear of man, and most of all, slavery to sin, the message of Christmas says, no, you can actually have freedom, real freedom. And then finally, fourth of all, we're going to see on Christmas Eve morning that though we live in a world in which people are chasing obsessively after significance, like a chicken with their heads cut off, running around to and fro, there's actually a bigger and a better glory to live for than our own. And by the way, it will give you everything that you wanted in the first place anyway. So that's where we're gonna go the next few weeks. And I just wanna encourage you, church family and friends, take those invite cards and invite people to these services because I believe these simple yet profound truths speak to the heart condition of every human being without exception. Well, today we're gonna jump in by looking at peace, the angel's song of peace. And we're just going to quickly walk the text I read, and then we're going to branch out, and we're going to see what does the Bible actually have to say about peace? And, and, and can we put some shoe leather on this? How does this affect me today, right now, in the nitty-gritty where I live? So are you all with me? The angel's song of peace. So as we just read, the shepherds are out in the field. And when you think, that's verse 8, when you think of shepherds, you probably have a nice, warm, I think the word is bucolic, pastoral image of, say, David, right? You know, in this, in this beautiful meadow shepherding the sheep. But by the time you get to the first century Palestine, that's not what would have come to mind when people thought of shepherds. It wouldn't have been a Thomas Kincaid-ized version or a Norman Rockwell-ized version. No, 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 no. You see, shepherds, in reality, were the lowest in society. Well, second to lowest, just a click above lepers. They were considered dirty. They were very poor. They didn't go to the house of worship, the temple, because they would be largely out in the field all the time. They were outcast. They were looked down upon, frowned upon. They couldn't even bear formal witness in a court of law. Many of them were known to cuss like a sailor. They were known to be connivers and swindlers, a bit like maybe you would consider Irish travelers. You ever heard that expression, or gypsies? In a word, they were not respected. They were looked down upon. They could not, in the mind of people, be trusted. So how cool, I just mentioned this in glancing and passing, that God doesn't choose the high and mighty, but these lowly shepherds in which he will reveal his glory to. And that is a reminder, family, that God cares about the last of us and the least of us. And we ought to as well. Because if you really see yourself in the light of God's truth, that's all of us anyway, right? So you have the shepherds, they're out in the field, 
and boom, verse 9, the glory of the Lord, bam, lights up the sky. Now, have you ever been out in the country, away from the city, and looked up in the sky, say at midnight, and you just like a dark, black canvas? I mean, we go up to Metamora sometimes only, what, 40 miles away from Detroit, Pontiac, a little closer, and you can see so many stars. Imagine how dark it would have been with no city light around to pollute the environment. None of that. The closest thing I can think of is, is, is uh, in the military, a howitzer shooting in, in pitch black at night, a 155 howitzer shoots this illumination round, massive candle power, and bam, it just lights up the countryside that was pitch black dark. The glory of the Lord is just lighting up the darkness, radiating everywhere. No wonder then the reaction of the shepherds is what? What's the reaction? They are filled with great fear. Literally, the Greek is they were filled with a mega phobos, a big time phobia. They were scared out of their wits. Now, were they wrong to be scared or do you think right to be scared? Yeah, let me, let me make, a, I think, an important point here. That was actually, that's actually a sane response to God's glory. You know that? That's a, that's a sane response. And I say that because the average person today has a shrunk down, distorted view of God. The average person tends to think of God as like that yellow uh, smiley face in the sky, Right? A Santa Claus-ish, and he's kind of like that benign, slightly senile grandfather who loves to give candy to the kids. That's what the average person thinks of God. In reality, we get a picture of how we should think of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember that chapter? Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train and the robe of his glory billowed through the temple. And then there's seraphim there. The highest echelon of the unfallen angelic creation. And these unfallen seraphim cover with their unfallen wings, their unfallen feet, and their unfallen face, and they cry out. We sang it just a few minutes ago. What do they cry out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What does that mean, holy? What do you think that means? There's a couple kind of aspects to the meaning of that. One, it means without sin. Without sin, without sin, but it also means completely other, separate, completely other, separate, completely other, separate. Well, in contrast to that, since we are not holy, 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 but what are we? Can we say it? Sinful, sinful, sinful. I tell you that seeing just a small beam of that glory. Just seeing a small beam of that glory would knock us to the ground, would drop us to the deck and wreck, and at the same time, correct our distorted, untrue, false, shrunken, unbiblical views of God, and it would do so instantaneously. That was a sane response they had. And by the way, part of the goal of biblical preaching is to try and have that kind of effect so that we can see God for who he is and we can see us for who we are. And so I want to remind everybody here as I continue the sermon, my, my, my responsibility 
is not to tell people or myself what I might want to hear, but what we need to hear. And that's why we make a practice of just preaching through books of the Bible. It makes you hit, as I often say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So now, after the shepherds are out in the field, the glory of the Lord lights up the sky, the angels make this announcement of good news. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, joy next week, that will be for all the people. We hear the uh, expression good news, and we kind of have an idea that's just a fuzzy, feel-good expression. But all through Scripture, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, Old Testament and New Testament, the expression translated good news actually refers to a formal announcement and declaration from the God of glory. For instance, you go back to Isaiah chapter 52. Nick said we'd be referring to Isaiah quite a bit. We will be. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, Isaiah says, How beautiful are the feet of those who publish good news. Remember that, that passage? means if you publish the gospel, whether you have bunions and ingrown tail, nails and all the rest, you got beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who publish good news, your God reigns in Zion is what he says. So you should think when these angels come down and make this announcement to the shepherds, the last, the least, and the lowly in the field, that they are hearing an official announcement from God, just like we are this morning. Think of a, a king in an ancient kingdom sending out town criers or heralds into all the city villages and squares, announcing the edict of the king. That's, that's what's happening here. And the angel continues by saying, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. Now, we just read past that stuff so quick, don't we? That's just window dressing. Let's get to the point. But there is a point in the city of David, in the city of David. You see, and I don't know how new you are to the faith, but you have, and I've mentioned this already, a New Testament, Old Testament. The Old Testament was completed several hundred years before Christ ever came to earth. So, and it says many things prophetically about Jesus before he showed up. For instance, it tells us again, Isaiah, Pastor Nick, Isaiah 7, 14, that Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin. A woman that had never been intimate with a man. And that not only would he be born of a virgin supernaturally conceived, but that he would be born, God called it 700 years before it happened, in a little town called Bethlehem. And to be exact, Bethlehem of Ephrata, because there was more than one. How about that? Micah 5.2 says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of villages of Judah, yet out of you shall it come forth, now listen to this, whose goings forth have been from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, eternal God is going to come to this world. And he builds on that by giving us three short words that are actually titles packed with description of exactly who Jesus is. Because you might think, well, Jesus is just kind of the pant part of the pantheon of religious figures. You know, you got Buddha if you're into that. You know, you have Confucius if you're into that. You have Joseph Smith if you're into that. And Mary Eddie Baker if you're into that. And on and on and on. You know, just kind of choose your bobblehead. No, 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 no. Jesus is God, the one true living God in human flesh. There is no other God. He says right here of Jesus, 
Look at what he says in verse 11. Unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior. Now, what does a Savior do? No trick question here, okay? A Savior does what? And why you got it right, he saves. He's never sitting in the front row again. I noticed you're not there today, Arpeth. I noticed that. Who does a Savior save? People who need saving, specifically people who know they need saving. So he's a Savior. And by the way, have you been saved? I, I, that would have been kind of foreign language to me up until I was 26 and wandered into a church service when I was in the Marine Corps. Have you been saved? I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you've made some kind of a confirmation right in some church. I'm asking you, have you been saved? You must be saved, the scripture says. He's a savior. Second of all, it says that he is Christ. And I used to think, you know, Jesus Christ, that's like Mike Hanafi, a last name. That's not what Christ means. Christ means anointed one. It means it's a title. He's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. What the angel is saying is this baby you're all gawking at is the Lord of glory. He is the promised Messiah. Speaking of Lord of glory, he goes on to say, Christ the, the what? The Lord, the Lord. He's God. You go to the book of Acts, which is the fifth book of the New Testament. I encourage you to read it. It's kind of the history book of, of the early church. Some 40 times Jesus Christ is called Lord. Do you know the, one of the first, at least, maybe, if not the first, but one of the first Christian confessions, you can find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think verse 13, Jesus is, Jesus is Lord. That was one of the first Christian catechism, confessions, theologies. That's who he is. Jesus is Lord. Then you go to the book of Philippians, you know that one day, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is anybody exempt from that? Everybody's going to bow. Now, some are going to bow as part of their just judgment against them, but others bow now willingly receiving his grace. Have you done that? You know, it goes on to say in Revelation 19, the first time Jesus came in a cradle, but he's coming again in a white, on a white stallion. That's what it says, right? Revelation 19. And when he comes, he has on his thigh and on his robe a name written, King of Kings, and what? Lord of Lords. Now, Paul puts all of this together theologically in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says in verse 1, I want to remind you, brothers, he says, of the gospel, the good news. There it is, the formal declaration that I declared to you in which you stand, which you received, by which you are saved, unless you have received the word of God in vain. He goes on to say in verse 3, for I, del I, for I delivered unto you that which I also received. The first importance, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, very important, because I always believed in Jesus. You know, he's a great example. He's, you know, somebody from the past, maybe even kind of thought he was God in some sort of way. But I, I didn't understand the gospel. I mean, I was an acolyte in the church. 
I had been confirmed and all that. I did not understand the gospel. We just sang it. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin, and by his death, and I would add his resurrection, I live again. I don't want you to miss that, and I don't want you to miss this. this listen, do what you want with a fat guy dressed in red. All cool. But the wonder and glory of Christmas is, is this, that the true, the one true living eternal God became man and came to us as an infant through the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's the glory of Christmas. And that is incredible humility. You read about the high and mighty, right? You read about celebrities. You read about musicians and all the demands they make when they're going to visit here or backstage, I need water at this precise temperature. You know what I'm talking about? Such pomp and arrogance. But here, the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes in a feeding trough. Born to a young peasant girl. Oh, the humility of our God, how we ought likewise to be people of humility. Now that brings us to the Christmas song itself. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. What do you think about this idea of peace? We read about peace. We sing about peace. We've watched the Charlie Brown special umpteen thousand times about peace. But peace is decidedly not something widely and genuinely experienced. In its place, worry, anxiety, and conflict. And I don't need to convince you of that because you know that in your own heart, right? For example, do you know that 19.1% of the population presently is experiencing some form of anxiety disorder? 19.1%. Higher rates, somewhat significantly, but among female population than male population. Do you know that overall in life, 31%, that is over three out of 10 people, will experience some bona fide anxiety disorder? Over three out of 10. Did you know that last year, in the last six years, the use of antidepressants has increased 34.8% by over a third among the population at large. That according to one study in Britain, one out of eight adults takes antidepressants. And that Zoloft in America is the 12th most prescribed uh, medication. Now, I am not bringing these stats up to say that the use of medication is wrong. There is its place when the well-planned, well-intentioned care plan under professionals and all, all the rest. So I'm, I'm not, not throwing shade in that direction. I'm just making the point, and I think you get it. There is an epidemic, epidemic of anxiety in America and just across the world. And I will tell you, being tuned in to everything that's going on all the time everywhere only adds to that anxiety that people are feeling. And for those who don't, for, for those who are part of the 7 out of 10, not the 3 out of 10, you have still experienced much life-choking worry in your life, haven't you? Maybe, you think? Would you be honest about that? 
In fact, if you were given a crate of chalk and a blackboard the size of the wall behind me, and you were given enough time, you could fill up that chalkboard with things that have choked the life out of you. Choked you in every sphere of life. Sometimes things you look back, you say, I don't, believe, I don't know how it did it, but it did. And then we're talking about conflict, which is not peace. Conflict is ever on the rise. Divorce rates continue to climb, markedly so. There is an industry of relitigating racial grievances among people who didn't experience those things or do those things, not to say there's not ongoing consequences, but that's not what this industry is about. No, no, it's about dividing. It's about putting at conflict people who previously were at peace because they've been collectively washed in the blood of Christ. I could add to that, and maybe you're wincing ahead of time, the kind of conflict that ha happens around the holiday table. And you are not looking forward to the Christmas holidays because you know conflict is going to come. Or maybe you just experienced that over Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, there were some things you weren't so thankful about because of conflict. Would you agree with me that worry and anxiety and conflict are running rampant? And yet here he says, peace. Is that something that you hunger for? Is that something you long for? It's, it, it, the Old Testament word, this is, this is the New Testament, so it's Greek, but the Old Testament word, shalom. It's just a fun word to say, shalom. Something feels good about saying shalom. Say shalom. Shalom. It feels good. Starts to give you a little bit of peace, maybe. That's not how it works, though. But it means wholeness. It means calmness. In fact, I learned this this week, that you could translate um, peace as as safety or being or safe, which is exactly how true peace makes you feel. It makes you feel safe instead of in, in some kind of external or internal danger, right? It could actually be translated friendly, which is how true peace makes you feel instead of at some kind of hostility inwardly or outwardly. And so I want to turn the corner of this message and just hit how we can have peace because of Christ in three directions. Direction one, God. Direction two, self. And direction three, circumstances. Y'all still with me? So here it is. First of all, and this is, this, is the, this is really, really big. And again, my job is not to tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear based on God's word. We can have peace with God. And I reiterate what I emphasized before. The average person, this was me, until the Holy Spirit started working in my life, thinks they're quite cool with God. And why wouldn't not God be cool with me? I'm, I'm a good person. In other words, the average person inherently, as part of their fallen conditions, fallen condition, thinks they have peace with God when they don't. Feeling at peace with God, I don't know who I'm talking to here, is not the same thing as actually being at peace with God. Because we are not primarily talking about a feeling, we're talking about a position. And the truth is, when we begin to see God for who he is, holy, 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 
and we begin to see ourselves for who we are, sinful, 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 we begin to experience conviction. Maybe I'm not right with God. That's what happened to me in the Marine Corps. That's what, exactly what happened. Susan will tell you the story. And I started cleaning myself up a little bit. I'm not going to talk that way anymore. I'm not going to do those things. But I was still trying to save myself. And if that conviction is turned into and of God, you begin to be convicted that you're not just a sinner, but maybe Romans 5.10 is true. I'm actually at hostility with God. I'm an enemy of God. I know that sounds strong, but I, I don't... I, I like the God that I made up. I like the God that I reshape, but I don't like the God that tells me things that I don't like to hear. I'm actually an enemy of God. And what's more, according to Romans 1, that I actually am deserving his judgment or what the scripture calls his wrath, his righteous indignation. And people deal with this in all kinds of ways, don't they? Some people just ignore it. Nope. The only reason you would feel that way is because you're because of some old-fashioned religious tradition and trapping, you just got to let go of that stuff. People ignore it. Or they medicate it, right? And by that, they're going to drink the feeling away or smoke the feeling away or perform the feeling away, whatever. Some people ignore it. Some people deal with that conviction by playing the comparison game. Yeah, maybe I did this, but you don't know Tommy. He did that. Tommy, I'm calling you all right now. <laughs> we can still hunt together, right? I better watch it when you have a firearm now, right? Um, but we play the comparison game, don't we? We say, I may have done this, but I haven't done what she did or he did. Or we start trying to save ourselves through some form of man-made religion, working our way up futilely because we can't into God's favor. And none of that works. None of that, I'm just here to tell you, none of that works. Because Romans 3.23 says, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Listen, the comparison game is a house of cards. One breath of God's holiness and they will fall and you will be laid bare before him as we all will outside of Christ. We all have sinned and we all face the same judgment. The way you want, you know what we, what we really earn? I just want what I deserve. You don't want what you deserve. The Bible says what we deserve for our death, the wages of sin, is death. What we earn for our sin is death. Now, there's a phrase in an angel song that is very often overlooked that about 27 years ago, my mother-in-law drew my attention to. It's one that's not often quoted in quoting this passage. You have postcards based on this passage, Christmas cards, and it usually has these words, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace period. But it goes on, doesn't it? It doesn't just say peace. What does it say? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's a key part of this passage to understand. Because the natural, the average person thinks, oh yeah, the whole world's at peace with God. And maybe you've walked in here, you were thinking that. But you say, but you have definitely uh, pried me away from that preconception because now it sounds like you're saying, nobody's at peace with God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. Yes, yes, and yes. That's exactly why Christmas means so much to us. Because God so loved the world that he sent his son that those who are enemies of him could have peace with him through the blood of his son. Now, when Jesus was baptized, 
You remember what the father said from heaven over him? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Happened again at the transfiguration. Do you remember that? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now check this out. This is such great news. He lived the life we did not live. He died the death that we should die, and he rose again. And it says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace is not first and foremost a feeling, though feelings will come out of that. It's an objective state. You were at war with God, now because of Christ, you're at peace with God. And God, this is such an incredible thing. God now looks at all those who have trusted in Jesus, repented of their sin, believed he paid their price on the cross and rose again, and want to follow him with all their lives unconditionally. God looks at such people through the one he says, this is my beloved beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So that now, God, let me make up for this uh, infraction I had against you, Tommy, God now looks at Tommy and says, this is Tommy, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. How about that? How about that? This is Carmen, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. Is it because Carmen is all that? Or Tommy lived a perfect life? No, because Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have. I'm not done yet. Watch, okay? Uh, (laughs) And his secured our salvation. Now, I'm going to end this. This is the longest. Well, maybe my second application will be a bit longer, but let me end this, this, this first application. I want you to listen to what the book of Ephesians says about those who are in Christ. It says you're blessed. Not just shallow blessed. No, blessed to the marrow of your soul for time and eternity. It says you're chosen. God says, I want you on my team. Yeah, you can't tie your shoes and you're uncoordinated. I want you on my team. And he picks you. He predestined you, it says. It says he adopted you. It says you're accepted in the beloved. It says you're redeemed, bought out of the slave market of sin. You're forgiven. He separates us from our sin as far as the east is the west. They never touch. You go on to Ephesians chapter 2, you have been made alive with Christ. That's why this means something to you. It didn't mean something to you before you were converted. Now it means something to you. (laughs) I'll stop stop here. You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies right now. We just prayed that. I don't understand that fully, but you're so joined to Christ, this union with Christ, that where Christ is, you are. You're seated with him in the heavenlies. And all of this, the Bible says, to the praise of God's glory. So listen to me. If you've turned to Christ, you really have, and you don't feel much peace, immerse yourself in this truth, that despite how you feel, you have peace with God through the blood of the cross. And I think just first and foremost, by marinating on that, immersing yourself in that, that will begin even to change how you feel, even click by click. But let me be honest too. You might say, I feel great, I'm at peace with God. But if you have never turned to Jesus Christ, I'm not saying you're a bad person in the human scale, God has put his image in all of us, but you're still a sinful person in enmity with God. And you're a bit like, going back to 2004, the person, I think it was in Thailand, on a beautiful beach there, drinking a pina colada 
totally unaware that within seconds a tsunami was going to rise out of the water and crush them. And the Bible says it's a point a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. But you can, through Christ, have peace with God. Objective positional peace. Number two. Okay. Peace with self. I'm talking to Christians here, but everybody as well. But you can be a Christian and actually lack peace within. Anybody ever been, anybody here a Christian who's ever lacked peace within? Raise your hand. Okay. And there's a couple of reasons. Tick them off. First two real quick. <clears throat> Part of it is not walking in repentance and pursuing the Lord. When David uh, slept with Bathsheba, Bible tells it like it is, right? Everything that happened. Had her husband murdered to cover his adulterous tracks. All that. Before he confessed it, what kind of experience did it give him? Even physically. You read Psalm 32, you Psalm, 50, Psalm 51, and you'll read about the effect it had on him emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, physically of walking in unconfessed sin. And that's why when we are feeling that kind of way, it, it, is, all, it is not always because of sin, and we'll, we'll get to that, but it might be, right? And so as we pursue all kinds of relief and help, we should say, am I... Am I walking in repentance? Am I pursuing the Lord? And there's this glorious promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of all your sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness as you confess it. If you're a believer, you can't lose your relationship with God as your father, but you can lose the sweetness of the intimacy or the fellowship until you clear out the sin through the blood of his son and confession in it. Number two, peace with self. Sometimes people don't have peace with self because, quite honestly, they are not believing the gospel. They believe it, but they don't. That's all of us. They're not functionally laying hold of what, what Christ accomplished for us. People do overplay, my goodness. No, I'm going to keep going for a few minutes. Did somebody mess with my watch? So, people overplay forgiving yourself when only God can forgive you, but acknowledging that, sometimes people walk around with guilt and shame that God already dealt with at the cross, right? There is an enemy who works in concert with your fallen nature to kick dirt on you and to keep you from enjoying what Christ accomplished for you. And that's why, as Pastor Cleese has been leading us with Arpeth, the gospel is, is for us, too. It's for believers. It's not, it's not just how people get into the kingdom. you got to preach the gospel back to yourself every day. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. There should be a lot more amens on that verse right there because we often feel condemnation we ought not to. And the third and final reason that we often don't have peace with self is because a barrage of thoughts assault our minds. Well, slow down here just for a second if you'll let me. It is not hard for our minds to be pummeled with thoughts that decidedly do not produce a sense of peace. Anybody there? There's a whirlwind of thinking between your ears that is destroying your peace that Jesus bought for you at the cost of the cross. 
I am reading. That's all right. We still got time, though. <laughs> now, you, now your watch is telling me something, Chris. I'm reading a book um, called A Still and Quiet Mind. Um, I'm in eighth chapter. I'm going to read it almost every night. Powerful book by a Christian lady who is a counselor, a licensed trained counselor, helping people deal with, who've experienced trauma, um, who've experienced anxiety, and, and then the resulting physical and emotional responses to those kinds of things. In chapter one, I'm just telling, this, this, this book is incredible. I mean, I, I should say it with a caveat because I'm only two-thirds of the way and I'm able to read something like, oh boy, I can't believe I mentioned this book publicly. But so far, a quiet and still mind. You long for a quiet and still mind? <sighs> he, she talk, I talked about wild, the thoughts that just pummel our minds. She actually has 11 categories, but I just want to read them quickly. Do you ever experience worried and anxious thoughts? Self-deprecating thoughts that assign you a false identity. Depressed, hopeless, and suicidal thoughts. Racing thoughts and incessant mental chatter. Daydreams, fantasies, and metal pictures of past and future events. You ever experienced that? Irrational thoughts that don't match reality. Sinful thoughts. Thoughts that contradict professed theology. Intrusive thoughts and images. Thoughts related to traumatic experiences. I don't know if I mentioned depressed, hopeless, and suicidal thoughts. Unwanted thoughts about unwanted thoughts. She goes on and on, giving some categories about that, and she breaks down this book into three sections, and I'm not going to, I was going to give you the chapter titles, we don't have the time, but general approaches for changing your thoughts, holistic approaches for changing your thoughts, specialized approaches, know your thoughts, pray your thoughts, rest your thoughts, disentangle your thoughts, focus your thoughts, capture your thoughts, calm your thoughts, last night, repair your thoughts, incredible, set aside your thoughts, dismiss your thoughts. Medicate your thoughts, sit with your thoughts. An incredible book. And all I want to do, to aim this, this first point, I commend this book to anybody here. It's a draw on two things quickly that are highly scriptural that she wields as tactics in working toward a quiet and still mind. Number one, fix your thoughts on God. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. He will keep in perfect peace, and the Hebrew is double peace, 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 intensified peace, increasing peace. He will keep in perfect peace those whose mind is stayed on you, for he trusts in you. I kind of butchered that, but I think it's behind me, right? You keep in perfect peace, his mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And I know somebody's saying, come on, man, that's the battle I'm experiencing. I already know that. And that's why the truth of this book is so good. Because it will teach you, you don't really, you don't begin to know the depths of what it means to stay your thoughts on him. Just, just chapter one, just chapter one. It's, it's to, to examine your thoughts, take those thoughts and you, exam, you, you look at them from a distance. And she applies four questions. Are those thoughts true? Are those thoughts helpful even if they are true? Are they appropriate? Sometimes it's okay to have bad feelings. It's appropriate for the situation. And finally, are they complete? Does God have something to say, else to say about that? And as you apply the grid of those questions to your thoughts, you will then begin to stay your mind on God. 
chapters and chapters on that. But the other part is prayer. Because a lot of people battling thoughts, they give up on prayer. And she makes the point that focusing your thoughts, yes, is very important. But that alone is just behavioral therapy, psychological theory. And she says this, she says this, quote, changing untrue, unwanted, and unbiblical thoughts requires truth and relationship. Relationship. And what is the primary way Christians express relationship with God? Prayer. Be anxious for nothing, he says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And by the way, the apostle then connects that to focus in your thoughts when he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any praise, anything worthy of virtue, think about these things. Now, I'm cutting out all the rest I was going to say and just say, cut to the chase. I know there's people here, you say, I've tried that. And if you were willing to raise your hand, there'd be a lot of hands here raised. I've tried that. But underneath the I tried that objection to this, oh, that's just too simplistic, is often the expectation that if you just prayed a little bit and thought a little bit about God, God would just snap his fingers and it would all, boom, be gone. But you know that's not how life works. Is that how you get in physical shape? Don't believe the quack pills you can take to make you fit just like, no, that's how it works. Is that how you get your job promotion? Is that how you get good grades? Is that how you change um, a profession? Is that how you complete a project? No. Diligence over time. Effort over time is progress. So I just want to, whoever, I'm just going to close this point. Be radical. Be willing to turn stuff off for a month or two months or three months. You, you really want that quiet and still mind, that peace that Jesus bought for you? Then give yourself to his plan for that. Turn everything off. Get radical. And you will experience change. Christian, peace is your inheritance. And I believe Romans 15, 17, you can be filled with all peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, finally, peace in all circumstances. If the brothers would get the elements, I'm going to fly through this because it's 12, 13. I may have set a record here. Um, you can have money in your bank, but no peace in your heart. You know that? You've read the, you've seen the documentaries about lottery winners, right? You can have great outward success, but incredible emptiness within. Remember Tom Brady, he won like his fourth Super Bowl and his third MVP. And he just, as the guy was interviewing, interviewing him, he gazed off into the distance after the interview, said, how do you feel? And he said something to the effect of, I don't know. It seems like there's got to be more than this. Huh? Four Super Bowls, three-time MVP, more than this. Yes. But on the other hand, you cannot have much money or much outward success, but you can have absolute peace. The Apostle Paul said that I have learned in every situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. He says, I have learned the secret in each and every situation of facing plenty and 
hunger, abundance of need. And now Philippians 4.13, which isn't telling you how you can score touchdowns, but how you can have peace in every circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God is not promising you, brother and sister, no trouble, no difficulty, no conflict. Jesus was honest. He put it on the barrel. He said, in this world, you'll have much affliction. You're going to have much tribulation. Things are going to be really hard sometimes. Peace is not found in the absence of problems, but it's found in the presence of God, of dwelling in the presence of God. In the Sea of Galilee, there were two storms. Remember that? There was the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is in the ship, the little boat with the disciples. But what's the second storm? The storm that's in their hearts. Remember that? Master, don't you care about us? Master, don't you care that we're going to perish? You remember that? And what we can learn from that is, though the storms be raging around there, even in here, if I have peace with God, I can have peace in here. That I say with Paul in Romans 1, if God be for me, who can be against me? For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor rulers, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of God's creation shall be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you should just pillow your head on that objective truth and see how it changes your subjective sense of peace. Huh. May we experience peace and peace more this season. Do not follow the prince of the power of the air, the course of this age, Satan. But remember, Jesus is the prince of peace, Isaiah 9, 6.